Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Welcome, I'm Rebecca Park, the Financial Services Practice Lead at Global Council, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Stephen Adams, the Senior Director at Global Council, who is um, an expert on trade and very much the politics of trade. Um, Stephen, I was keen to talk today about the issue of cross-border trade in financial services. It's inevitably been a discussion of much debate throughout the Brexit negotiations, but also an area of focus as the UK starts to think about future trade deals and what that could mean for financial services. And obviously, we've seen an increasing number of trade deals and arrangements being announced, but not necessarily um, much detail yet on financial services and how this could be used to facilitate trade. Um, I know this is an area you've been looking at in much detail recently. So first of all, I kind of want to start with sort of thinking about why is trade in financial services different to broader forms of international trade in goods or even services more generally? Sure, thanks, Becca. Well, I, I mean, I, we should take this opportunity just to plug a piece of work that uh, GC has been involved with, um, which is that we, we have had for a long time a relationship with UK Finance, the representative body for uh, UK financial services firms. And we've just collaborated with them uh, on a, a big piece of analysis of precisely the question that you've just asked me really, which is why is trade in financial services different? And what does that mean for a UK that is now setting out its stall as an autonomous maker of trade policy outside of the European Union's common commercial policy. And of course, as a jurisdiction for whom financial services really matters. Um, and the piece of work that we've, we've, we've collaborated with UKF on is both designed to be a bit of a grounding in some of the fundamentals uh, of trade and financial services, but then some of the implications of those for trade policy. And it has some fairly, um, some fairly clear recommendations in it on what we think uh, a trade policy for financial services needs to look like. And we can maybe talk about some of those, but the, the simple, I think the simple answer to your question, I mean, obviously services are very different from goods um, in the sense that, and, and in the key sense that in many respects, um, most trade in services doesn't actually involve something crossing a border. Um, most trade in services takes place through a fixed investment um, the creation of a commercial entity or an authorized or licensed entity inside the jurisdiction of the importer. So a UK bank sets up a subsidiary or a branch uh, in the United States or Indonesia or China or the European Union, of course, since the 1st of January. And it sells services through that entity to local customers. And that is the dominant way in which services are traded, financial services and services more generally, internationally. Um, and yet, of course, statistically, that's invisible. Um, when you look at the statistical data for trade in services, what you're generally seeing is cross-border trade in services. So services where the customer and the seller are on different sides of a boundary. And that, of course, happens. It happens a lot. Um, it doesn't happen very much in financial services. And the basic reason for that is because financial services is so heavily regulated. And, and that raises the inevitable question and supervised. So it doesn't just, it's not, not just a question of a rigorous regulatory framework. It's a question of rigorous regulatory framework, which is enforced on a day-to-day -day basis with relatively intense supervision, right? And that makes it inherently quite problematic in some ways to trade cross-border. Because if you're worried about consumer protection, or if you're worried about 
financial stability or you're worried about the probity of uh, the counterpart in a financial services transaction if that counterparty is outside of your jurisdiction then you have a particularly you have a particularly big problem and that's one of the reasons why most trade in financial services internationally happen through commercial establishment so you you invest in the country in which you want to sell you set up a branch you set up a subsidiary you are locally regulated which solves the problem of being across a regulatory boundary and that means that um, a a lot of that trade is invisible uh, in conventional statistics because although the, the numbers look quite big for cross-border trade and cross-border trade in financial services in fact that number is dwarfed by the sales of uk financial services firms, for example, in Asia and America and Africa and, uh, you know, the European Union. Um, and it's much harder to measure that statistically. But it also means that we generally speaking, you're dealing with a different kind of problem. Because if you're setting up a branch or a subsidiary in another country to sell to export financial services through, then often the kind of problems you'll be worrying about, you might be worrying about the basic market access framework. But of course, generally speaking, actually, that kind of trade is quite open internationally. The problems you're more likely to be having are just day-to-day -day regulatory or supervisory issues in which you're subject to duplicative or um, incompatible regulatory obligations in the different jurisdictions. You're penalized in some way for being part of an international group. You are required to subdivide your capital um, between entities in different jurisdictions. And those aren't really the questions that trade policy kind of conventionally understood has normally tackled. Trade policy tends to deal with uh, qu broad questions of market access and broad questions of non-discriminatory treatment. And those things, of course, can be a problem uh, in some places. But in fact, in many cases, in most UK financial services export destinations, getting access to the market to set up a, a bank or run a brokerage, um, I mean, obviously, you know, Markets like China are still difficult, but certainly, you know, big OECD markets are generally relatively open. So it means we need a trade policy that can focus not just on um, these questions of can I set up a subsidiary, but once I've set up my subsidiary or my branch, how compatible is local regulation there with regulatory requirements in the UK? Because those will, those for many financial services firms will be the kind of knotty problems on a on a day to day basis. And the other, of course, the other the, the, the other implication of this. This, this way of thinking about financial services, this, this, this recognition of the fact that it's highly regulated, intensively supervised, is that it's always going to mean that cross-border trade in financial services is difficult. And there are, of course, ways in which states have tried to solve that problem. Generally speaking, they've taken a number of kind of routes. They've either excluded areas from regulation altogether. So, for example, the UK spot FX markets are not regulated at all. And that means it's very, very easy to sell foreign exchange services cross-border in and out of the UK. And then there's another set of tools which are based around recognition. And that, that essentially means the, the, the willingness of one jurisdiction to trust another jurisdiction sufficiently to allow cross-border contracting in FS. And this, of course, starts us down the uh, highly contested road of what the EU calls equivalence, uh, because equivalence is a is a, is a recognition-based model for cross-border trade. Um, but as we've seen, and maybe as we can discuss, it's a model that the EU has in fact decided it uh, is um, a bit cool on when it contemplates applying it to the UK. 
Before we get into the mechanics of how you do cross-border trade in, in financial services, I wanted to touch on one thing there, which is what are we actually talking about in trade terms here? Because you've, you've gone from everything from consumer protections to spot FX there. I mean, realistically, there is no international provision or very limited international provision in, in what we'd call retail offerings and retail services. So, I mean, is the debate and the conversation that's going on right now about opening that up for the first time? Or are we realistically talking about more traditional forms of wholesale and capital markets? Well, when, when you're talking about um, when you're talking about investment in a authorized and um, and locally licensed entity, generally speaking, you know, again, it varies, but but most segments will be open uh, in most major markets. Um, so you know, it's it's possible to if you want to set up a retail bank in the United States, a locally licensed retail bank, or if you want to set up a locally licensed retail bank in you know many parts of Southeast Asia. It's it's not it's not impossible. I mean the, these these jurisdictions they they do have they they, they place restrictions on uh, on on new retail banks um, in some cases. You know restrictions on on branch creation or the the extension of ATM networks. So, you know there there are there's definitely not an area where it's always plain sailing. But broadly speaking, as long as you're inside the regulatory perimeter of the market that you're exporting to. You know, generally speaking, you'll be able to do most things. You know, obviously, give or take some exceptions. The the area where the spectrum that you're describing becomes really critical is cross border trade, because obviously the the sensitivity to cross border provision will be highest where the domestic customer is perceived to be the most vulnerable, and obviously that's that's retail banking. So it's very rare anywhere in the world to have uh, large-scale codified frameworks that allow you to sell retail financial services cross-border, because that's the area where consumer protection is 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 the the biggest concern and where the sensitivity is highest. So, generally speaking, if you want to if you want to export retail financial services, you have no choice but to set up an established, licensed, authorized entity in the market you want to sell to. Once we're talking about wholesale services, of course, in some ways that's the area where the the questions start to get a bit more interesting because the counterparties to the transaction are more sophisticated. They are, at least in you know, at least in principle, um, they are better able to judge the risks they take. They're more aware uh, of the kinds of issues that they need to consider when they're buying and selling financial services. And on the whole, where those kinds of frameworks have been created that allow cross-border trade in financial services, they have been overwhelmingly targeted on wholesale services provided between sophisticated counterparties so you know spot fx large-scale spot fx um certain wholesale banking services certain investment services um but always or almost always with a focus on kind of sophisticated customers so so, so you're right we really do need to think of these things as being a bit of a spectrum because the the sensitivities are not the same at every point on the spectrum and for the for the uk of course this becomes really key because the the, the uk is not an international financial services center because it's got a great retail banking industry i mean it may have a great retail banking industry that's not the point the point is as an international financial services center that that reputation or that function is built on sophisticated wholesale services so for the uk it's always been particularly important to have a relatively open approach to cross-border trade in wholesale financial services, which indeed it does. Um, it, it has one of the most open regimes in the world and much, much more open than, than either the EU's regime itself or the regime of any other individual EU 
member state and, and of course London's international status or the UK's international status as a financial services hub is in many respects built on that openness to cross-border wholesale financial services trade. Because there, the UK has a, a relatively open regime for financial services. What more can really be achieved then for cross-border trade in future trade agreements? Mm. Well, that is a really good question because, and and you've you've kind of raised it from a couple of angles. So, I mean, there, there's in some ways there's a reciprocity. I suppose you might start by saying there's a reciprocity question. If the UK is already very open and doesn't really have you know any real intention of reducing that openness. Um, at least not at the moment. Um, you know, what is the incentive for our trading partners to uh, to um, you know to 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 engage in negotiation uh, with 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 the UK if they already have fantastic access to the to the UK market, which in many respects they do. You know, what do they stand to gain from concessions on their part? And that's a that's a fair point. I think though, there's a more fundamental problem with with the FTA model, as far as financial services is concerned, which is that. Financial free trade agreements are binding treaties. And there's almost inherently, I think, a tension between a binding treaty and a highly sensitive, highly regulated, intensively supervised sector. Because one of the things that the independent regulators and supervisors of financial services are very reluctant to do, of course, is to bind their hands in terms of what they will and won't allow in terms of, for example, cross-border provision. So although the UK is very open, for example, it's never committed in a free trade agreement to bind that level of openness at its current level. And that's just a reflection of the fact that it's happy to be open, but it also wants the policy space to be able to change its mind, essentially, in future. Um, maybe because of the reciprocity issues that you've been flagging, but probably much more fundamentally, just because the judgment would be made that, you know, there was a prudential reason for the UK to change its current status in some way. It doesn't really matter. The point is that both the policymakers and the supervisors and regulators want to leave those options open. So, so you, the trouble you have with FTAs is that they, they in many ways, they're, they're, they're not tools really designed to, um, to, to work effectively with a sector where there's such a high level of regulatory sensitivity because they, 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 they bind you. And um, most regulators of cross-border trade and financial services don't want to be bound. They want to leave the, uh, the option of changing their minds in future. So while there are things you can do with an FTA in financial services, you can, you can try and lock in a little bit of the less sensitive market access. So the, the, the access for, for branches and, and subsidiaries, you know, obviously because that's inside the domestic regulatory perimeter, it's much less sensitive. So you, most FTAs will generally bind some of that existing access. But once they get onto the very sensitive question of cross-border trade and financial services, they tend to stop at the water's edge because that's when the sensitivities really kick in. You can also use FTAs to um, create a kind of baseline of good regulation and create institutional channels of cooperation on, uh, you know, between regulatory, between regulators or supervisors. So there's a range of things you can do with FTAs, but I think you need to recognize, we, you know, we need to, re to recognize the, the limitation of the instrument. It's not really, it's not really the, you know, the, 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 the right tool for driving new access. That's going to come from regulatory diplomacy, the relationships between UK policymakers and their peers abroad, the trust that they build in the UK's regulatory architecture and to be honest the skill and effectiveness with which both uk 
policymakers and their uh, counter uh, you know, are able to engage with their counterparts abroad on the domestic reform agenda in financial services in those markets. So the, if you think about a market like China, you know, we, when, we, we're not going to sign a, a, you know, a, a services FTA with China. Uh, on financial services. But what we might do over the next five or six years is to engage with the PBOC, engage with uh, the, you know, the Chinese securities regulator and engage with kind of reform-minded officials in China on the direction of travel in China's financial services liberalization agenda. And it's ultimately going to be that dynamic that will produce the changes on the ground that will matter for UK financial services exporters, the elimination of foreign ownership caps, the, the improvement of the ease of licensing for renminbi businesses, those, all of those sorts of things. It's not going to come from an FTA. It's going to come from regulatory diplomacy. Doesn't regulatory diplomacy, to be effective, rely on trust and incredibly kind of open dialogues between um, regulators, whether it's the, the UK and the EU or, or across other countries and nations? Given the way we saw the Brexit negotiations pan out and quite frankly some of the rhetoric we have seen in the last couple of weeks I and mean, we've got the governor of the Bank of England stridently talking about the need for the UK not to be a rule taker we've got the European Commission clearly lasering in on very sensitive issues like uh, the location of central clearing parties is regulatory diplomacy not just a, a kind of wishful hope or a desire or do you think it is actually a credible strategy uh, well, I mean, that's a fair question. I mean, it's also, it's also worth just, I think, maybe noting in passing um, that uh, the government of the Bank of England is not exactly a kind of, you know, frothing at the mouth Brexiter. Uh, and, and yet, I mean, I don't know. I don't presume to know the mind uh, of the government of the Bank of England. But the point is, of course, note where the defensiveness is coming from there, right? It's coming from the regulator itself. And the regulator's argument is essentially, we will protect our independence and our prerogatives from regulatory harmonization in which we don't get a say in the substance okay so th th that's that's important and i think that's evidence of exactly what we're discussing which is the the fact that you have to start from the point that fs is a highly sensitive regulatory intensively supervised area and that's that creates all kinds of questions around how you build this this framework for cross-border trade now of course you're absolutely right on the trust question um Regulatory diplomacy is maybe just a fancy way of saying that to achieve almost anything in this area, you have to have an element of um, mutual confidence uh, between regulators. They often, if you look and you know, if you look at the kind of frameworks that have popped up over the international economy in the last decade and a half, that allow for cross-border trade in financial services, then they're not often based on close line by line reading of the rule books in the two markets they're not based on legally binding agreements that provision a in your law will be exactly the same as provision d in my law they're based on a more um they're based on a, in some ways a, a, a looser sense that these are just regulators that trust each other that they basically think or supervisors that trust each other they basically feel that they're pursuing the same ends they have the same aims in mind they commit the same kinds of resource to supervision um and that, that therefore they trust they trust they trust each other um and there's no replacement for that and i i actually think that this is one of those things that's really worth bearing in mind in the current context in the UK-EU relationship, because as you know, we're, we're, we're pushing towards this apparent MOU 
at the end of March, which will somehow provide uh, you know a new basis for um, for the for the relationship in terms of financial services. Um, and I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that the two sides will agree some text on regulatory cooperation. It will have broad provisions in it on their mutual commitment to implementing G20 and Basel standards, and that it will create a committee that will meet periodically. But kind of to your point, if these things aren't ultimately infused with an element of trust and close cooperation, they don't serve any particular purpose. You can, you can have trust in the absence of an MOU and no MOU will create trust. And rightly, as you say, in many respects, the future of the EU-UK relationship in financial services is going to depend on rebuilding, I think it's fair to say, rebuilding some of the, you know, the, the, the trust that, um, that close cooperation is, is inevitably built on. Um, I mean, obviously, I think there are, uh, the, the EU-UK relationship is a very, very intensive one. And of course, it's defined, it's got very specific characteristics uh, that mean that trust is both very important but has also been easier in some ways to lose because of the dynamic of, 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 of deintegration. If you look elsewhere in the world, I think you're often talking about um, slightly less fraught situations where it's possible to build you know, broad coalitions of interest you know, with the United States, with regulators and supervisors in the United States or with regulators and supervisors in Hong Kong or Singapore um, where you, know, the, the, um, you, you don't have the same baggage, you don't have the same geographical proximity, you don't have the same sense that the two sides are competing in some way for value add. Um, so I mean, I think regulatory diplomacy, you know, with, 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 with emerging, emerging regulators in, in Southeast Asia, with the United States, um, there's, 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 plenty, there's plenty to be achieved. The UK, U, EU context is going to be very specific, and in many respects, I suspect, probably quite problematic, and it's going to be a rocky road back to anything resembling uh, smooth trust-based relationship. So we have our building blocks then. We've got the, the UK's open approach to, um, you know, accessing financial services markets and, and, and encouraging investment here in the UK. We've got um, the limited elements we can achieve in, in a traditional financial services trade deal context. And then we've got our kind of regulatory cooperation and um, building that trust framework with, um, with, within the negotiations. Is this new ground or are there existing examples, precedents where we can look at and say, actually, that's the approach that the UK can start taking. Here are some examples of what's worked before and, and how we can evolve that. Mm, well, I think it is, it is actually relatively new ground. Uh, I mean, I think that um, the UK is already, if you look at something like the UK-Japan FTA, within the constraints of the FTA model, as we've just described it, you know, I think the UK has, has already tried to innovate a bit in terms of deepening the content on regulatory cooperation, making explicit that the two sides will look for ways to use difference so that, you know, the, the, the tools that we've just been describing in which essentially you, you know, you, you recognize that because Japan regulates and supervises at a certain level, it may be possible to rely on the, that the quality of that supervision and regulation in certain ways. And although the UK, Japan, FTA doesn't require or prescribe that approach anywhere it it does encourage it and that's a you know that that's that that's not something we've seen in in ftas anywhere else really and it is i think going to be part of the uk's kind of general approach um, there are examples um, from across the global economy of, of regulators and supervisors who have 
use this deference model in various contexts. You know, the Australians, uh, the United States, in, in certain in certain cases for securities. Um, the EU, of course, when the UK was on the inside, uh, developed one of the most ambitious frameworks for this kind of cross-border trade that has yet been codified in law, which is the which is the Mifid Mafia framework. But of course, it now looks likely that with the UK on the outside and the potential beneficiary in inverted commas uh, of this regime, in fact, may never be activated. So, I mean, I think that there are examples that the UK can um, uh, can uh, can pick from around the world of the way in which you can you can try and use deference to improve or, or forms of regulatory diplomacy just to improve the the uh, the ease of cross border trade and financial services. A lot of it's going to be, I, I think, really just um, uh, channeling the UK's instincts in in in, in even as they existed as an EU member uh, in kind of new ways uh, into new relationships like the relationship with which with Switzerland, which can be can be quite different with the UK as an autonomous trading partner, and the Swiss have clearly, I think, got some of the UK's appetite uh, for looking for ways to kind of unlock cross-border trade on the basis of, uh, of difference. The US in some areas, um, some of the Southeast Asian regulators in some areas. Um, so I mean, I think it's, um, it, it is new ground. It's, it's very much incremental. I mean, I don't think any of this is going to be transformative, but I think in some ways it's just about, I think the big, the big shift needs to be this shift as you kind of characterized it at the start, from from thinking about you know thinking about FTAs as like I mean the core of a trade policy for FS, to in some ways the the the, the more kind of quoted in reality of just dealing day in day out with regulatory duplication, um, the the drift to fragmentation that we've seen since the kind of high watermark of the. Uh, of the Basel process in, in 2014, 2015. Um, the, the tendency as we've kind of seen in the in the EU to slightly draw up the, pull up the drawbridge in some ways on um, on cross-border trade in financial services. So it's it, it's it's gonna be, uh, I think the, the reality of an effective trade policy for financial services is that it's not about big bang FTAs, although they can have their value. It's gonna be about the day-to-day -day slog uh, of, of just, um, of trying to keep as much openness and trust um, in the system as possible. Stephen, thank you. This is clearly a topic that is going to evolve over the coming months, and I'm sure we're going to revisit again, potentially once we have an MOU um, between the UK and the EU on financial services and, and reflect on what the, the details of that really mean and, and whether it will bring forward the uh, much anticipated equivalence determinations. Um, but yeah, thank you for your thoughts and conversation today. Great. Thanks, Becca. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.